When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? Well, I'm still here. I just want to say you look great. It's very nice to be in the same room with you. I just I just always enjoy your company and I think you are a great great man. You're angling to be deputy prime minister, aren't you? Well, yeah, I saw this I saw this thing went viral online the other day. It was it, it reported in the sun. I'm not so sure about viral. Well, marginally fungal, I think. <laughs> It, it, it said that you, you're in line to become a, a caretaker prime minister in the event of a national... I think more unit. likely to be a caretaker at my local park run or something. Oh, so is it the British press, typical British press, getting things wrong again? Yeah, I don't know. You're angling for a job, though, aren't you? I just think, <laughs> I, I mean, what, postmaster general? I'm, I'm surprised you're setting your sights so low. I thought you would have thought you'd be angling for deputy prime minister. Yeah, but I'm going to go with it. Once I'm in there, I'm going to really um, work my way up. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a real house of cards, that stuff. What, and like try and topple me? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And install the Jeffocracy. Yeah. Do I, is First any, I've heard of it, basically. So there's no reason I need to be nice to... Damn! No, you can, you can be your normal self. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how, how are you then? Fine, fine. Um, it's another dystopian week in our sort of dystopian world, isn't it? Don't you think? Yeah, it's uh, you know what what is good is when you think it couldn't get more dystopian. Yeah, something else comes along. Yeah, and what do you think about Colleen Rooney? <laughs> <laughs> I'm try I'm trying to stay neutral, like uh, like Sweden in, yeah. in this matter, until all the evidence has been. Uh, all the evidence is, is, is funnily enough. Earth. Actually, I would have imagined it would be the kind of thing you might do. Or, oh, yeah. My you know. wife said exactly the same thing. I said to her, "Have you seen this? This is ingenious." She said, "You only think that that because that's ex- exactly the sort of thing that you might do." In I other words, be so paranoid do- about somebody slighting me. I could have, I could I have was- imagined you, you sort of, you know, a very sophisticated sort of st- sting operation. Th- thank you. I mean. I mean, what I'm hearing there is I think you're a really sophisticated guy, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. So I'll take that. If you ever think I'm leaking stories about you to the newspapers, <laughs> just ask me direct rather than doing some Instagram weezeroo. Honestly, sort of... you, you know that thing about Donald Trump saying that he could walk down Fifth Avenue yeah. and murder someone yeah. and no one would care. I think like I, I, I could walk down Stoke Newington High Street doing something unspeakable and the newspapers wouldn't care. I think it'd be fine. Do you not think? I tell you, it was something that once happened to me. Yeah. I was once... It's um, not unspeakable, is I it? was once in central London and a paparazzi guy on a moped came up beside me and took a photograph of me. And I said to him, you know you're never going to be able to sell that photo. He said, yeah, of course I do, but I just thought it might make you feel good about yourself. Did you say that? Yes. <laughs> and then we had a chat and like, he listened to the radio show. 
That's quite good, actually. Did it make you feel good about yourself? Briefly, apart from the fact that we, you know, the the complicit acknowledgement that that he would never ever be able to sell a photo of me. It's sort of like when people, after some of our live shows, people say, "You said to them, I think you said to somebody, are you just having asking to be in the photo with me because you're making me feel good?" And they said, "Yes, yes yeah, basically, it's, yeah, yeah." So it's sort of slightly be best not to say. Is that right? Well, just leave it hanging. There. Leave we, it hanging. We all know that you're only asking me to be in this photo because it makes yeah. help me feel good about no, myself. I can, I can, uh, I can see that. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh, on that high, yeah, on that high for my self-esteem. Uh, what are we talking about this so week? So this week we're talking about civil disobedience and direct action. We are part way through Extinction Rebellion's third major action in central London in the last year or so, as people will know. Uh, their campaign for greater action on the climate emergency obviously divides opinion. Some criticise the disruption they cause, but activists have responded that conventional politics is not working. I think I agree with that. We're going to be exploring the theory and history behind this kind of non-violent civil disobedience. We're joined by somebody from XR, Extinction Rebellion, about their strategy and theory of change. 2019 is the 150th anniversary of the birth of Gandhi who many see as the key inspiration behind civil disobedience. And we're talking to an expert on this approach. And then we're talking to the founder of a student civil disobedience movement in Serbia in the late 1990s, who teaches nonviolent strategy to activists around the world. Maybe we, maybe you and I should take his course. That'd be great. Yeah. Enroll as mature students. Yeah. I can see you with a pencil case. See, I'm seeing it very much like one of those kind of American college films with hijinks and escapades. Are you going to be wearing one of those sort of, you know, high... They're called Letterman jackets. Is that what you're Is that what they're called? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could sort of see We could join a fraternity. Revenge of the Nerds. (laughs) (laughs) And Ed, you popped along to one of the Extinction Rebellion sites, and we're going to be hearing from the people you spoke to. Uh, But before that, what's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful is that I got a tree. You from got a tree? Extinction Rebellion. Lovely. Yes. So um, tell, tell me more. Well, they've got a tree for every member of parliament as a symbol of what we're trying to protect in the climate emergency, but also uh, one solution to the climate emergency, as we've discussed on this podcast before. And uh, it was really encouraging, actually, because I went, to, I was rather a late comer to getting my tree. And Were you feeling left out? And I thought I might have been barking up the wrong tree. No. uh, These jokes really sap your energy, don't they? Enough now. Uh, Enough. Enough. (laughs) Leave it out. Uh, That was barely uh, perceptible, that last one. um, No, it was encouraging because I went along late and lots and lots of MPs got their trees. Jeremy Corbyn's staff have been down to get their tree. Boris Johnson's staff have been down to get their tree. I mean, it's quite, you know, it's not the kind of, as I said to the organisers, normally you get an egg chucked at you rather than a tree being presented to you. So I think it's quite, I think it's a, and we're going to get into this, but I think it's a sign of that they're, you know, it's a smartly thought out operation. Very John and Yoko. Exactly. They used to send uh, acorns to world leaders to try and do that. We could grow our hair for peace. Yeah, what, have you ever, for the you, climate. You've never had long hair, have you? No, I don't necessarily fancy sort of lying sitting in bed with you for sort of how how long was it? Uh, for a week, was famously. It, was um, it only a week? Well, they, they did it around the world, but the, you know, the, in the song it says, uh, I "Drove from Paris to the Amsterdam Hilton, talking in our beds for a week." But th- that was that was as well as the beds. There was also the sending the acorns because they wanted world leaders to plant trees right. for peace. Anyway, um, do you want to know about my reason to be? Yes, careful? go on. What is it? I went to a pick your own farm on Sunday, which I've never done in my life before, and it was 
great. What? Now, I don't drive, so we had to uh, take take public transport to Enfield Town and then take a local minicab firm. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think the bucolic life could be for me, Ed. What did you pick? You know, I, I picked some courgettes. Don't really know what to do with them. I've had to, the Nigel Slater book out, but there's nothing really I fancy. So if you want to take a courgette home with you today... God, what an, what an irresistible offer. Why is it okay for Extinction Rebellion to give you a tree and yet when I offer you a courgette, you, you turn your nose up at it? I think you're slightly overreacting. <laughs> uh, and what, uh, some onions. Yeah, so uh, I had a very oniony tea on Sunday after it. But, uh, you know, I, I think this could be the life for me, picking your own. What was the best thing about it? Communing you with nature? But yeah, yeah, uh, I saw some cows. That was quite fun. But just, t- just t- sort of taking my three-year-old out and getting him to see where food comes from, because you know I can have a hard time getting him to eat anything that isn't pizza, pasta, or ice cream. So it was a way of trying to get him to think about food a bit differently. And what did he conclude? Well, he very much enjoyed the experience, but then wanted pizza as soon as we got home. Courgette pizza. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Tell us about your experience of XR and how you got involved. Um, So I got involved basically because I used to be obsessed with David Attenborough wildlife documentaries when I was a kid and I did a degree in zoology and I've been wanting a movement like this to happen for years and I'm so thrilled that it's finally happening. I'm worried that it's going to be too late. In fact, I am completely panicking about that, but I'm just really really excited that this is happening thousands of people in the streets in london has given me actually quite a lot of hope you're carrying a placard do you want to tell us what's on it uh, on the placard there's three boxes tick boxes uh, there's one that says sign petitions it's got a big tick next to it the other one is being on marches again with a big tick box next to it a third one that says written to my mp big tick next to it and then finally it says honestly don't know what else to do and a little Extinction Rebellion logo next to it, which says non-violent. What's the best thing about XR? Um, I think the policy of uh, non-violence and I think the policy of de-escalation and, you know, treating people with respect and stuff and not, not alienating people by being violent or aggressive. Because I've seen that in protest movements in the past and I always thought that's never going to work. If you're, if you're throwing stuff at the police, that's not going to work. You know, I think you need to make it as mainstream and widespread as possible and get, get you know, your average Joe on board. I'm actually Dr. Malcolm White. I work in hospitals in uh, Scotland and mostly work and based around Glasgow. So it's obviously a not small journey to come on down, but at the same time, it's quite easy, really, to come down here and camp for a number of days, either on the street or in parks and... Um, it's, that's because we, there is such a vibrant community and such a supportive community of Extinction Rebellion. When you have a non-violent movement which actually promotes the sort of culture that you'd like to see in the rest of society, then actually people feel it's much easier to engage, it's much more family-friendly, and it means that people just walking down the street can look at you and say, oh, these people are all right, they, they are people just like me, and they want to see a better world, not just smash the old world. I've been involved in protests before and I found it very difficult that the police were treated badly. You know, I really didn't like that at all. They give a lot of information to everybody about how to do this the right way and how to respect the police and and the way how I heard, I heard before that we were giving out leaflets to people in cars saying, yeah. I'm sorry. What's the best thing about XR? XR is a beautiful movement. It's powerful. 
It's based on love, love for the, the whole of life. And because it's based on love, it's going to win through. OK, you're really optimistic. I am. Are you genuinely optimistic or are you just cheering us up? Well, yeah. I, you're cheering us up. I, yeah. <laughs> it's good. We need people cheering us up. What, what about you? What's the best thing? You've got an extra... What's your name? Kathy. Kathy, you've got a fantastic bee hat. Yes. I mean, that is a great bee hat. If only people could see your bee hat. Uh, and you've got a very, very good time, which is Be The Change. Um, yeah, it, 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 having joined Chippenham XR, I realised that it is everywhere. Somebody in our group said, if it's in Chippenham, it's everywhere. I've been on a lot of climate change marches and um, general just actions that are of the more sort of traditional variety. And when I came to XR's protest in April, I was immediately struck by how different the ethos and the feel was. And it is very much this uh, completely integrated, non-violent atmosphere that was tangible. It really felt like a very different um, intentional environment to be part of and that people were really coming at it in a such an open-hearted sort of love-filled way uh, i heard a good quote this morning um on an interview with jen bendel that was talking about uh, people come to extinction rebellion out of fear but they stay out of love and i think that's yeah for me personally that's definitely been true with us now is Zion Lights, who is an Extinction Rebellion activist and editor of The Hourglass, which is Extinction Rebellion's newspaper, which I saw for the first time in a cafe this weekend. Uh, how's, how's it all going with that, Zion? Yeah, really good. Actually, we didn't print enough copies. We printed uh, 110,000 copies on recycled paper, of course, and thought that would be enough. And it just was nowhere near enough. It's still people um, ringing us, journalists ringing us, saying, can we have a copy? And I'm just... We'd like ours, That's we? it now. Yeah, I mean, we need one. <laughs> um, so we, we're talking about civil disobedience today. And I wondered if we could start by asking you about the, sort of the, the theory behind Extinction Rebellion and, and your approach to activism. Um, wh- why this civil disobedience rather than other forms of activism? So Extinction Rebellion was founded by um, an assortment of people, but let's just say many of them were geeks. And they looked at the data, a lot of them scientists, um, academics, and they looked at the research. And I've read a lot of this research, which looked, you know, was to determine what's actually successful in a social movement. How do we get this right? And a lot of it comes down to this one paper and, and a book actually by Professor Erica Chenoweth. And she studied 323 social movements over about, I think it was about 100 years, something like that all around the world and looked at what made them, what made the successful ones successful. The ones that had their demands met, what did they do differently? And so she found that they were overwhelmingly non-violent, decentralised, and they um, practised civil disobedience, so that's breaking the law and repeatedly breaking the law. And they took it to the capital city, so we're in London because that's where it's the best place to cause the disruption. And it's also happening in Amsterdam and Berlin and Sri Lanka, I just saw this morning, you know, all all over the world. So there's two parts to Erika Chenoweth's data. There's that, and there's also this 3.5% number, which you might have heard. And right, yeah, t- tell us about this. This is a really interesting This gets thrown around a lot, yeah. and it's actually, it's accurate. It's pretty much accurate, the reporting I've seen on it, which is um, when 2 to 3% of the population is engaged in a cause, it's much more likely to win. But 35 is like this magic number that when that many people are engaged, 
pretty much every movement that she studied did did actually win. There were so very few that didn't. It's a tipping point, as, as, it, as yeah. they call it. Um, Ed and I both had the same reaction to this. We're like we're, we're both got our calculators out. If this is almost like a, it's it's a rule. Is the Iraq War then the the exception that proves the rule because the change? But it's not about that many people, um, you know, signing petitions and agreeing. It's getting them on the streets. That's the really key part. That's the get take it to the capital city. Can we get that many people? Because the problem is, once you have that many people, first of all. It's impossible to arrest them. It's And actually, let's face it, they're having a lot of struggles on this front already. They had struggles on this front in April where they were exa- the police were exhausted. They, they ran out of space in um, police stations. They had to outsource to other stations. They had to call in more police and they still couldn't. And actually what happened in the end is they gave up and we left voluntarily after two weeks. So it, and, and now we're seeing that again. Now they've got more police, but we're even bigger but it, for us, it's a question of when will we be so big that they can't ignore us anymore and just call us crusties and try and dismiss us? So it's three and a half percent on the streets of a capital city. On the streets, on the streets, actively engaged. I tell you what, I think was really struck me um, at the uh, being there yesterday and talking to some of the folk there, and obviously I was there in I guess April as well. Um, is it was really imbued in all the people I talked to. That while this was civil disobedience, non, it was non-violent. It was sort of nice to. I mean, a, a few people said to me, "Oh, well, it's really important to me that it's being we're being nice to the police." To t- talk to us about that because I don't. I think I think for people who are not who don't go there and see what happens, it might look like it's coincidental that you're not chucking stuff right. at the police, yeah. but it isn't coincidental. It's kind of thought. We do through. chuck, you know, vegan cookies at them sometimes, right. <laughs> they except when they're allowed. They have to ask the sergeant usually. <laughs> Go on, explain to us. Trees as well. Yeah. Yeah, so so this is part of our theory of change. So it's going back to the real basics of Extinction Rebellion and what we stand for. What we're saying is we need deep systemic change. We need system change. And that's not... that. It's so much bigger than the conversations that normally allow this. And it's about uprooting this broken system, right? We need to act out of love. And if we're not doing anything out of love, we are just part of the problem. Where has anger gotten us? Where has war and anger and hatred... And division, look at the division over Brexit. Oh my goodness, brought out the worst in everybody. And we're tired of it. And it's, it's all got to go. It's all got to go. And actually, you're seeing a lot of fear now, that, I think. And does that explain part of the relationship with the police? That's completely the relationship that we have to act out of love. So even if they hurt us, we have to act, act out of love. And that's, I know that sounds like a really hippie thing to say, but the truth is, it's really hard to be nonviolent when someone attacks you. It, it's not a passive thing. Being nonviolent is, a, you know, and it's not even just a strategy. It's about being strong in yourself and understanding that you can't be part of the violence that has caused this devastation on our planet that is causing all these species to go extinct. We can't be part of the problem. We have to stand for something better. And that's and that's what nonviolence means. And actually, if you look at, you know, a lot of us have done the reading into other, other movements. And, you know, you look at the civil rights movement, for example, the black people going out on the streets protesting segregation and there were white supremacists who came out and beat them up. And it was captured on television and it was horrendous. And they put out, it was so bad, they were putting out cigarette butts on their skin. This is real stuff that happened. It's horrendous. The law said it was okay. They continued to go out. And actually, when people saw that, when white people saw that, who were not involved in that struggle, they were not, it's not my struggle, I'm not involved, it doesn't affect me, which is just what we're seeing now to a large degree. When they saw that, they realised, 
I have to pick a side here. I have to choose. Am I going to be an ally or not? And then they would come out and they would protect. They would help to protect those people. Not- what, what about that issue? Sorry to interrupt. What, what about that issue of persuasion then? Because obviously, you know, you'll have heard this a million times, the criticism, which is does it alienate the public, people whose lives are disrupted, people who are trying to work, maybe people on low incomes? What? Mm, I honestly talk, think, talk yeah, yeah, I honestly think a lot of this, and I don't want to sound defensive because there are definitely those criticisms, sure. but I think they're really overblown and that the press gives them a lot of coverage when actually it's not what we're hearing. So, you know, um, w- when we're on the streets, we're often the ones standing in the road, blocking the road, yeah. and we will always go and speak to the motorists. So sometimes they are angry and I've seen, uh, I saw a 70 year old man with a bag of apples going to each car. Would you like an apple? I'm sorry. And it's very rarely met with anger. Actually, you have a conversation. And I did see one man yesterday at Trafalgar Square, very angry because he normally sells stuff in where we were, but he's not, I think he's not allowed to do it. And so he was saying, you're drawing attention to this. He was so angry that I actually was watching it thinking, oh no, something's going to happen. It's going to escalate. And they called in a de-escalation team, which is an extinction rebellion de-escalation the escalation team this lady came in i mean i don't even know her i don't know what yeah. she's trained in and i'm not joking i actually took a picture on my phone because i couldn't believe it this extremely angry man like really angry really raging at this other guy she stepped in and he was just on like on his arm just chatting away to after about 10 minutes and, and later and then i saw a video that just we just put out um of people speaking about the police getting a bit a little bit brutal now being overworked and making mistakes and hurting people and and he was captured and he said and he he said that they're just trying to provoke them into violence and i was watching and i was thinking that's the same man you know wow. this this is how much this can wow. work it's not just fairy nonsense i've seen it work i'd love to see the video of the de- yeah, yeah. we should have the de-escalation person sort of and that maybe they could help us <laughs> and that's a lot of the work that we're doing that isn't seen you know it's not seen and it, it and it is part of the way that we are trying to create a better we're trying to create something better it's not just about going sitting on the streets it's not just about super clean stuff if you came on site yesterday you might have seen the doctor's area did you see their program full program of events how to speak to patients about climate change um, how to deal with grief. They had every day. I mean, I looked at it and was like, how can anyone call us anarchists? This yeah. is way too organized. <laughs> you know, they're doctors and they're scientists with similar things going on, like all kinds of stuff. You know, we, we are trying to build something better. And it's really, really a shame that when people don't come and see it and they read in the press that we're just unorganized and we're chaotic and we're anarchists. Because if you come and have a look, actually, it's not what you'll see. And there's very, fr- you know, few people that you might call crusties around. What, what about the um, question that's been raised about an arrest strategy? and its relationship to people of colour who, when they get arrested, have a much, much tougher time of it. Yeah, so there was actually a Guardian article on this recently, um, pulling out some of these issues, and, and it was based on an initial tweet that someone, again, you know, can't speak for everyone in the movement, but someone had made saying, we need to get everybody arrested. And again, people do say this, but this isn't a huge part of our strategy. The thing is, yesterday I was looking around in Trafalgar Square, seeing them moving uh, and, and, and in J- St. James Park. So I was in St. James Park and they rang the horn and sections fought it and they started arresting people. And I walked back to Trafalgar and then they started doing it there as well because there were people in the roads with t- tents. And it was just all sort of just suddenly kicking off. And um, yeah, you know, th- what I heard was people saying we need help, we need help at the front. And there was just a swarm of people who are prepared to get arrested who went to the front and they and no one forced them. They're perfectly capable of making up their own minds. I would say, you know, we're not in, we're not actively saying to other people, you need to step up and do this because actually there are plenty of us who are and push comes to yeah. shove, I'll be the same person, you know, yeah. when it comes to it. To be honest, at the moment, we're filling their cells. We're not short on people who are willing to take it to this level. So that's not really something that we say is part of our strategy. But obviously, any 
anyone in the rebellion can go on record as saying that. You're so organised. So you've you've got the contingent of people who are the, the arrestees ready to, ready to go, ready uh, to be deployed. They're just aware, but it's to... not. Yeah, I mean, but they're just aware. You know, yeah. they're just we're looking after each other. So they hear a call, the tents are being moved, someone needs to block them. We know that if we do that, we'll get arrested. They just go and do it. So, so what about the sort of organised the, the the system of it? Um, I mean, how how does stuff happen? How does the planning happen? How does the information about what you so do this is where started? if you speak to people in the movie some of them will tell you we're not organized enough but i still think it's incredible how much we do um and there's definitely stuff we get get wrong but we you know we try to be fluid so we use a self-organizing system and we draw on the model of holacracy and what this means holacracy so it's a like an organizing model that some businesses use it's like it's quite well well um it's got a good reputation anyway what we do is we have different circles so we'll have like a media team which i'm in we call it a circle and then we'll have like actions so they planned a lot of the actions around london and they'll do it autonomously and there are groups within that who are mandated who given a you know the decision making power to just decide for all of us because we can't all chip in on everything and they'll, they'll do that and then we'll have um, you know, another circle, we've got a political circle, we've got citizens assemblies, we have anti-oppression workshops to deal with, you know, systemic race issues. We don't claim to be above all of that. We, we know, why would we, we be immune to issues that affect everyone in society? We're, but we're trying to do something about it. We're trying to be more inclusive. So we have all these circles and then groups get mandated to do different things and then they feed back to each other. And that's how it should work. And sometimes we don't get it right and something might get missed and something something comes out of it and we all go, hang on a minute, that wasn't fed back to us. You know, how did that happen? And then we tried to have a conversation about it. But I'll still say this is a lot of ordinary people working at this and you just kind of look at it and go, can they really just not that manage that in government? Like, how hard is it? Just listen to each other. And is it, do you think it's working? I think at the moment we're seeing, you know, that Gandhi quote, first they fight you, they laugh at you, then you win. I think we're in the fight stage because initially they were quite friendly, people were quite friendly towards us. The police was quite friendly towards, much more friendly towards us. Um, and the press was quite friendly. And now I think, you know, we managed to occupy 11 sites around Westminster. We managed to, you know, we didn't get our pink tractor in. Yeah. I don't know if you follow the pink tractor, but you know what? They, they took a lot of the equipment, but they're never going to take the will. And I think that's the thing. You can't confiscate a rebellion. You know, it's going on anyway and you can keep arresting us. And, you know, it's like that game where you hit the, mo- the mole and it crops up somewhere else. Like a mole. That's literally what they were doing. You know, they clear a site because I was trying to work out which site to go to on, on, you know, at the beginning. And it was like they've cleared that site, but we're cropping up somewhere else. And there's a whole new wave coming. And like Greta says, like Greta says, this change is coming whether you like it or not. And And you can see it. You can go and see it now. Those people are just... I can't imagine how they will clear that many people. If you think about the sort of middle ground in this, you know, the people who are sort of sympathetic uh, but aren't necessarily, you know, obviously aren't necessarily demonstrating, do you think they're being won over? There's some evidence that opinion in the opinion polls that concern is growing about the issue. There's a lot of research supporting us. So someone did some independent research and found after the April Rebellion, we had the support of two million people. I mean, I can't, I don't know how accurate that was. It, it sort of saw it doing the rounds. There was an Ipsos Mori poll a few weeks ago that found over 80% of people concerned about climate change. And a really important Comrades study that was from a few weeks before that, which found that over 70% of people were concerned about climate crisis. And it was like in the top three concerns for British people and 53% were extremely concerned and those were the highest levels since those polls began in 2005 that shift is definitely happening this is what i meant when i said earlier that you're not really seeing that reflected in the press they're still kind of presenting it as look at all these upset people but if you go and speak to the angry motorists 
yeah they're angry and then you hand them an apple or a vegan cookie or you say come out and have some food and we always have great home cooked food or you know it's it's actually really weird and it, and I think you'd know right because su- oh in fact here's a great example I was on Trafalgar Square yesterday and there was a journalist who said she was speaking to someone else she said I, I'm really struggling to find the opposite side I need to find people who aren't happy that they're here and the other guy said look I don't know what you want me to do I've been asking people for half an hour there isn't anyone genuinely that genuinely happened I don't know what network it was but I was like yes <laughs> that's really interesting though because you know where are the people who really you know you would hear them right I mean I know there were like Twitter comments and things like this but overwhelmingly we do have a lot of people should support we have celebrities we have you know actors we have doctors musicians scientists this this is a problem that concerns everybody and there's very few people who aren't concerned about it and there's very few people who are outright saying this is the wrong thing to do even when they say you know it's disrupting us a lot of them will say but we understand why you're doing it and that it's necessary so we have a lot of support you know and if we didn't then we would rethink everything because we're doing this for everybody so we're not doing it against people and are you an optimist I hope so. For me, this is like really incredible to be part of this huge movement of really smart people who just love life on this planet, don't want all these species to go extinct and just feel like I'm part of something bigger now and just not on my own fighting this anymore. That's for me. And a lot of people say that within the movement that they were kind of doing the little bits on their own. We've got old school C&D activists come out and, and join XRP. So we've got all, you know, we've got farmers on board who felt that their voices weren't being heard. We've really tried to platform their voices. You know, it's really bringing together a lot of kind of, I don't know, the old tribes, like every, everybody together. Yeah, I mean, it's positive for me, but it's hard as well because we're fighting. It's, it's a real fight. And I felt when I was on an Andrew Neil show that I was you know I was under attack and it was like a fight but I just thought to myself you know and, and I had a lot of Twitter comments afterwards and I just thought but we're all fighting on different fronts I know right now there are rebels being arrested and my friends are being arrested I know right now you know 164 environmental activists around the world killed last year we had a vigil for them yesterday 30 of those were in the Philippines this is, you know they, they're doing exactly what we're doing so in a way we have to use that privilege I think to just to just do everything we can and think yeah it's not great we don't want to give up our civil liberties we don't want you know we don't want people to be horrible to us if, if the worst that can happen is someone can call me a crusty you know that, that yeah. that's fine that's, I, that, I, I re- recognise <laughs> that recognise that people are li- lose their lives for this cause yeah. in other countries and indigenous peoples UN report has said that they are the best caretakers of the land. They're better than anything we've got. Let's hand that land over to them. It's really important. Those rainforests, we need those. Climate and ecological crisis doesn't have borders, right? Those rainforests go, we all go. And what's actually happening? They're being murdered. The lands are being taken away from them. I can take a bit of bashing over okay. it, over a difficult media slot. Okay, Zion, really great to have you on. Thank you. Thanks uh, for having me. Very, very admiring of what you're doing. Thanks. I hope you'll enjoy planting your tree. I promise I will. <laughs> Now, to talk about the background to Extinction Rebellion and some of the theory and principles behind it and civil disobedience, I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Dr. Talat Ahmed, who's lecturer in South Asian history at Edinburgh University and author of Gandhi Experiments in Civil Disobedience, published earlier this year. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, very glad to be here. So your book is subtitled Experiments in Civil Disobedience, as I say, what was Gandhi's approach to civil disobedience just to start with and what uh, influenced it? I suppose that one of the key things about Gandhi is that um, he's, he's a very popular figure. Um, and in terms of his activity around civil disobedience, it was very much based upon having mass agitation. Numbers for him were very critical. Um, Gandhi's approach was that if there were unjust laws and unjust 
state and unjust policies, then this had to be challenged. It was also underpinned by a very strong moral and philosophical um, current. Uh, Gandhi's own personal philosophy of his religion is something that was an underlying principle here. And this really is where the whole question of nonviolence comes in. Because for Gandhi, the whole purpose of mass civil disobedience was not that this should be an act in and of itself, but that it was designed to cause an effect. And the effect was to persuade people through moral persuasion. And Gandhi's teaching of nonviolent civil disobedience is rooted very much in his own sort of indigenous Indian philosophy and traditions. But Gandhi's ideas were also influenced by conversations that he was having, particularly early on in his life, with people in the West as well. So, for example, he was deeply influenced by Henry David Thoreau and his essay on civil disobedience, which was designed over opposition to slavery and the American-Mexican War. But again, it was predicated upon non-violence. And here Gandhi was particularly influenced by his conversations and correspondence with uh, the great Leo Tolstoy, who in his book, uh, The Kingdom of God is Within You, um, really expounded his views on non-violence as far as Russia and the rest of the world was concerned. And what were the, just for our listeners, because it might sort of make them sort of kind of get the history a bit better, what were the key acts of civil disobedience or give us one or two acts of of civil disobedience in Gandhi's independence movement and what impact did they have? I suppose the one that really stands out is um, the Salt March of 1930. You had Gandhi leading um, a march of 78 dedicated followers over 240 miles from his ashram in Ahmedabad all the way to the coastal town of Dandi near uh, present-day Mumbai. So it was a colossal um, effort just at that level. And this was all because Gandhi wanted to break the um, colonial uh, assault tax because he regarded that as being unjust because it was a penalty on all Indian families. Um, And he felt that this was an indigenous product and therefore it was um, the right of every Indian to procure salt for themselves. So he embarks upon this march and ends up in Dandi and picks up salt um, and, of course, is arrested and detained. But the other thing to say about this is that in the process of this march, there were thousands of people, particularly from small towns and villages, who marched with Gandhi and came to support him. And many of them themselves were engaged in activity of procuring salt for themselves and therefore breaking the colonial legislation. And I suppose one impact of his protest can be shown in the fact that by the middle of 1930, over 60,000 Indians had been arrested and thrown into jail, which is quite a huge figure even in colonial India and to have your jails packed out that way. And it did have an impact because Gandhi did force certain concessions and was able to um, negotiate with the British following that. Um, But the other thing to say about Gandhi is that because nonviolence was very important to him, there were other acts that happened in terms of civil disobedience which did end in violence. Um, And this is particularly true with his non-cooperation movement in 1922 and also with the Quit India movement in 1942. And how have Gandhi's tactics um, then sort of echoed down the ages? How have they affected other liberation struggles and, and social movements, would you say? 
Well, clearly, I think that, you know, people often refer to Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement in America as uh, one special uh, example of the continuation of Gandhi's politics. People also reference sometimes the peace movements in Britain in the early 1980s, particularly around Green and Common. And in both of those movements, we certainly can see uh, the politics of uh, mass of mass politics, I suppose, of mass agitation, of non-violent, non-cooperation with authorities. But I think what I found really quite amazing uh, when Extinction Rebellion burst onto our screens, it's been quite striking to me that many of their leaders and also many of their activists have invoked Gandhi in saying that, you know, that Gandhi was correct and this is why we are using the tactics of civil disobedience. Although I'm not so sure what Gandhi would have made of the tactic of actually gluing yourself to pavements or to each other. Does it feel like it's sort of from, you know, somebody who knows the history intimately? Does it does it feel like it's the tactics are similar? There certainly is a similarity. And, you know, the echoes are very, very evident to me in the sense of how people talk, in terms of how the nonviolence is totally critical to the activists involved in Extinction Rebellion. Um, and the fact that they are also operating outside of sort of parliamentary democracy, as it were, in that sense. And also the fact that they are willingly prepared to court arrest and be arrested and not resist arrest, which again was also something that was a feature of Gandhi's movement. So there certainly are similarities there. Okay. Well, look, uh, Dr. Tala Ahmed, thank you so much for joining us. We should all know our history and you've done a brilliant job of explaining it to us. Thank you very much, Ed. So talking to us now from Belgrade, we have Sergio Popovic, who is author for Blueprint for Revolution and founder for the Centre for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies. Sergio, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I, I want to talk about how you founded the Otpor movement in Serbia. And, and maybe I wonder if we could start by asking you to tell us what Otpor is, what the story behind it is, and, and what impact it went on to have. Hi, Ed. Hi, Geoff. Uh, proud and happy to be on on trying to make people find reasons to be cheerful in these crazy times. Uh, I was around uh, 20 years old and playing guitar in a rock band and busy partying and dating uh, when when I was involved in a student's movement in Serbia. Otpor, which is the Serbian word for resistance, uh, was a youth movement fighting the Serbian dictator at the late 90s called Slobodan Milosevic, also known as the Butcher of Balkans. Uh, because of his very uh, nice behavior to neighbors, uh, the the resistance was the was the very interesting generational response uh, to the combination of crazy guy in power who was starting wars in the neighborhoods, producing the uh, world's largest hyperinflation at the time, and a complete incapability of opposition or international community to solve this problem. Uh, so we were like the hobbits in uh, in the Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. It was not that we are the most fit people to 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 bring this change in Serbia, but there was nobody to do the job. Uh, it started in in uh, 1998 after the series of students' demonstrations. So at the time, we were already vets of the students' demonstrations. Uh, it had a pretty cool vision of tomorrow. It was capable to achieve uh, large numbers, growing from 11 people to probably around 50,000 people 
in the mid 2000s. Uh, it had some signature things. It had a pretty wise strategy bringing young people to vote, which at the end outvoted Milosevic. Uh, it had a, a comprehensive set of tactics of nonviolent struggle, ranging from uh, uh, from extinction rebellion like uh, protests and street theaters, all the way to the to the mass strikes and other acts of civil. Uh, disobedience and uh, it had a really cool design and really cool actions and it was considered the most cool thing to participate in and i intentionally mentioned this cool factor because now we are looking at a very important element of different social movements if you're cool you're more likely to succeed uh, movement was uh, successful in bringing people out to vote defending vote on the elections in september 2000 and eventually ousting milosevic who stepped down after october the 5th in 2000. And, and can you talk to us a bit about the key principles of, of what makes nonviolent action effective? Uh, you discuss this in your book and you promote it at Canvas. Uh, can you tell us a, a little bit more about the ideas behind it and what works? When you take a look at the book, when you take a book of, the, of, a, of a Canvas teachings, uh, the core of it is understanding the, that, uh, A, you really need a vision. Second, you need to understand the battlefield. You need to understand the institutions you need to sway. And you need to target, uh, right, institutions. Targeting uh, is, uh, across the globe, a very important part of your success. If you're looking at the American civil rights movement and wondering why they were targeting bosses, for example, and not mayors or governors uh, in the times of fighting against the segregation, it was because the buses were run by the white business supporting white segregationists. And it was because the buses were vulnerable to the, to the Afro-Americans boycott. So when you are selecting your target, uh, you need to select it before you select your tactics. Nonviolent struggle is so much more than going on street yelling and protesting. Uh, successful nonviolent struggle requires planning and strategy. The third thing, uh, numbers count. Uh, there are there are many studies looking at how many people you really need to shift the society. And uh, when you take a look at uh, uh, Erica Chenoweth and Maria Stefan's study, uh, which kinds of very encouraging you need around 5% of the people daily engaged in order to achieve 50% uh, chances of success. It may sound a little, but it's actually a lot. Uh, aside of the numbers that count and you need to cultivate, diversity is also important. In every nonviolent struggle, uh, the middle really counts. So you really want to grow from the extreme of the political spectrum into the mainstream of the political spectrum. And that often means you need to make compromises, finding the smallest common denominator, negotiate with the people that you wouldn't normally have beer with. Uh, so this diversity is very, very important. Uh, last but not the least importance, a very important thing that we figured out throughout working with over 50 organizations across the globe, the humor matters. Uh, it's not only being serious or being angry. Sometimes it pays off to be funny and crack jokes and use political satire. Uh, first of all, humor breaks uh, the, the most important blockers of social change. In dictatorship, it breaks fears. In, uh, in, uh, uh, in uh, democracies, it breaks apathy. Uh, second, humor adds the cool element to your movement, and people love to join things which are cool, as we all know. Last but not least importance, and it worked in cases of Milosevic, it works daily uh, with the people like Putin. Uh, uh, when you are mocking people in power who tend to think too highly or too important about themselves, they very often made mistake. 
uh, when we placed the barrel with Milosevic's face in uh, Belgrade downtown shopping district, uh, put, a, put a baseball bat next to it and uh, invited people to hit it in order to express their love for president, uh, police appeared and because they couldn't arrest us, because they couldn't arrest uh, downtown shoppers, they actually arrested the petrol barrel. And that was a very popular photo at the time. This is the element of cool, an element of dilemma, but it also puts your opponent between the rock and a hard place. If they react to your prank, they will look stupid. If they don't, they will look weak and people will understand that they can get away with it. And then more people will start copy pasting these tactics. And uh, I must say that, uh, or admit, that one of the, our largest inspirations in history was the fact that we grew up to Monty Python's Flying Circus. So very often the Otpor was looking like Monty Python's Flying wow. Circus, and this was in part why it was so effective. So, you know, thank you, John Cleese. And the big debate here about Extinction Rebellion is the disruption they're causing, which draws attention to their case, but risks, in the view of some people, alienating uh, people. Where do you come down on that? In in that, what do you think about that? Do you think that's just a necessary part of an action that that actually has an impact, or do you think it's potentially problematic? What what do you think? Well, it can be both. And when you take a look at the successful movements, they they select their tactics strategically. And sometimes you play on the tactics of disruption when you want to raise the attention or you want to put a lot of pressure on decision makers. Uh, but sticking only to tactics of disruption is uh, is uh, is a blindsided street because eventually you will sideline the people you want to recruit. You need a combination environmental movement of a more, more mainstream forces and a more disruptive forces. And successful movements uh, normally have a different area of tactics or different roles within the different organization. The role of Otpor in Serbia was to disrupt Serbian government. Parallelly, the role of United Opposition was to come out with the presidential candidate and win on the elections. Parallelly, the role of set of NGOs was to bring out young people to vote. So yes, disruption is important, but it's only the part of the wider strategy that you need to have if you want to sway the social change. Uh, when it comes to the to the recent situation, uh, you know the disruption pays off uh, when when you get when you get uh, when you get results from it, and uh, then you need to build on these small victories. So, in case of of XR and persuading lawmakers to do ABC, proclaim uh, uh, emergency on on climate change, it is very important that a you disrupt, but then you focus on the delivery. We are living in the era of social movements. Uh, the politicians uh, tend to be screwing uh, in so many. Uh, different places. So if you're thinking whether or not uh, whether or not to get engaged, get engaged. There is nobody else to save the world if we don't take uh, things in our, our hands. Sergio, thank you so much for telling us your story and giving us your thoughts on what's going on with Extinction Rebellion. And your book is Blueprint for Revolution. Sergio Popovich, thank you so much. Uh, pleasure being with you guys. So what did you think? Well, I, t- I tell you what, I was quite discouraged by something that Sergio said. What? He said, uh, if you're cool, you're more likely to succeed. That makes me think I'm more likely to fail. No, I think he was talking about the movement. Right, 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 right. I just worry that I would detract from the overall coolness of any no, movement. No, 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 you, you're not, you wouldn't. What What do you think about um, the whole concept? I tell you what, I'm fascinated by this 3.5% idea that if you get 3.5% of the people on the streets of a capital city, history shows that that, that, that movement will then achieve its aims i wonder 
how that will change in the digital age. I wonder, you know, what online engagement uh, would need to be versus being on the streets. Uh, I mean, I am very, I am very struck by Extinction Rebellion, how well thought through incredible. it is. I mean, I think it is just really, it's not just like, oh, well, let's go and stage a protest or a sit-in. It's incredibly carefully thought through. Um, and, you know, they're obviously not going to go away, which I think is quite important because although it is obviously disruptive, um, I think it has, you know, it has changed the agenda. The fact is net zero, and forgive me if I said this before, but net zero by 2050 used to be the radical position. Now it's seen as a conservative position. And that's partly because of what they've done. And they've put the Citizens Assembly on the agenda. They, you know, put the climate, the whole notion of the climate emergency on the agenda. And and the other thing I think is interesting is it's like a, it's a really interesting one-two combination of Extinction Rebellion and the pupil climate strikes. Because the pupil climate strikes, I think a lot of businesses and politicians are always thinking, these are tomorrow's voters. You know, so so I think it's not the only thing that's going to get us to where we need to go, but it is a really important source of pressure. Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. If you've got thoughts on nonviolent civil disobedience or on Extinction Rebellion or both, please do email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at cheerfulpodcast and also on Instagram at that address. And you can also go to our new Fandabidozi website, cheerfulpodcast.com. Lovely to say the word Fandabidozi in 2019. I know. You're keeping it alive. Isn't it Crackerjack, yeah? Was it Crackerjack or was it one of the Crankies would say that? Uh, Or maybe both? ITV, I wasn't allowed to watch that. What if we went on Halloween, you and I went as the the Crankies? No? You don't fancy it? I could be little Jimmy. My children were talking about going as Boris Johnson, actually, on Halloween. Really? (laughs) Here's here's a question. So my son wants to go as one of the Paw Patrol on Halloween, which is a children's cartoon. My feeling is you have to be like a ghost or a goblin or a ghoulie or a witch or a wizard or something like that. Are we now doing it American style? You can just send them as anything. Yeah. So he'll be fine. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this comes from Andy Waterman about our High Streets episode. We don't uh, we, we go High Street. Hello, long time listener, first time caller, etc. I was slightly disappointed that the latest episode didn't go more into active travel as a means to boost local high streets. I thought the last guest was going to go with it there when he mentioned how they first started off with a car-free day and was briefly alluded to, but not in as much depth as I think it deserves. For reference, TFL, as Transport for London, have recently published a guide on the economic benefits of walking and cycling, uh, which highlights that people arriving by bike or by foot spend more over a month than those arriving by car, and that dwell time number of repeat visits both increase when areas are pedestrianised and when decent cycling infrastructure is added. Very interesting. As a side note, I love the show and have pretty much done since I first found it when you were three months in. Oh. Back ah, back then, though, I wasn't fully sure I understood the title, as I really couldn't think of much to be cheerful about. Back when uh, David Cameron was just resigning and the Brexit future under May looked bleaker and bleaker. However, I really think the show has come into its own since then. And the positive ideas you managed to find and talk about each week really do live up to the promise. Lovely. Keep up the good work, Andy from Bath. 
This comes from Izzy Hool, who says, Hi, Jeff and Ed. Um, I've emailed a few times, but as promised, I am now using you for my students' homework. I'm an A-level sociology and psychology teacher in a fab state school in West Sussex. Fab Dubby Dozy. Fab Dubby Dozy school in uh, West Sussex. And I'll be using your podcast for um, independent work often. The first was set on episode 71 on the private school reform. My year 12s loved it, and we had such a powerful discussion about inequality and privilege, and the students had some brilliant ideas, based on the topics you discussed. She says, please see image. And there we have it, the homework that we yeah. get. And it says, um, task private education. Please get out your notes from your homework after listening to Reasons to be Cheerful. Jeff, you are on the curriculum. That's, that's you great. are the homework. At last. Yeah. Uh, she the says, man who never did his homework is uh, now the homework. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she says, you will uh, now will have a much younger following from my class of 32 sociologists who said young people aren't into politics. Um, I think the next I will set will be about music education as it made some interesting points about the EBAC. Oh, well, big shout out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now, this one <clears throat> comes on the vexed issue of <clears throat> sandwiches. <clears throat> How are we uh, still talking about this? <laughs> um, so this comes from Angus Groom. After an hour of hearing about Ed's Make Your Own Sandwich Shop, I couldn't help but think it already exists. When you go to Subway, you can choose your bread and your fillings. You get something that's generally healthier and cheaper than similar fast food equivalents. I don't think he works for Subway. They've been going 54 years and have over 42,000 stores. Maybe he does in over 100 countries. So yeah, I suppose you're right. It's a good concept. But I think someone got there first. Does that guy do PR for Subway? I don't know. <laughs> I don't think Subway's quite the same. Though. Well, it's better because they have trained operatives handling the food rather than people just getting their fingers in there. But I think lots of sandwich shops, you you, you can sort of build your own sandwich. But I don't think that's quite. I think there's a distinction <laughs> between build your own and somebody else makes it and make your own. Because you know, what about is the right amount of cheese? You know, you can't sort of kind of you know. You Let can't me tell you, an intervention. I, I had a reverse experience last week. So when we were in New York, there's this place we always go close to where Sarah used to live, which does the greatest sandwich I ever ever tasted. It's called a Tofurky Club, and it's like a, a veggie version of a club sandwich. And the last time we were there, I took a photo of the sandwich sort of in cross-section. I made a list of the ingredients. I tried to replicate it at home, and it wasn't as good as the shop-bought sandwich. And did they replicate it for you? No, no, I, I, when, I, when we went there, oh, 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 I took I a photo of it and then tried to replicate it at home and I couldn't get there. My homemade sandwich wasn't as good as the shop-bought one. Yeah, that's just because you're not competent. <laughs> just in denial about this idea. Thanks, everybody, for emailing. Do go to our website, cheerfulpodcast.com. There's lots of brilliant uh, information there about this week's episode, about previous episodes. Uh, you'll want to go there and do sign up for our newsletter. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're in the outro. Before we go, you left us a bit of a cliffhanger last week. You, yeah. you were, you Almost were, as good as the Legend Centre story. <laughs> you were about to try out a new to you parkrun yes. course. Cosworth Hall is really good. It's got a heartbreak hill right at the end. Are you not allowed to do the course backwards and then you could go down the hill? No. Ah. Mm. Uh, uh, it's like a really steep hill at the end. And Do you just, need crampons? Not that steep, but it is a sort of... It's a bit of a hard... It's called the Great Lawn, but it's that, apparently, the bit, that bit, but it's it was a really hard hill. But I finished. Um, uh, did you did you get a PB? I didn't get a PB, but I mean, it was the first time I'd done the course. Respectable 20, time? 26 and a half. And minutes. what is your PB? My PB is like 25... 
15. Okay, it all seems yeah, like there or thereabouts. Yeah, I remember not... when you were back at 27 yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> back in those days. Yeah, yeah so I'm, I'm making progress. And will you be making a return visit? Definitely. I'm a, I'm a bit of a... I mean, I have become a Parker on board, haven't I, really? Mm-hmm. I think let's just... Yeah, yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah, PB, absolutely. That, yeah. That's a PB that yes, I am. Yes, you are. Yes, yes, uh, yes. <laughs> are you going to ever come on one with me? Yes. Tail yes. walker. You know, they, you can just walk round. I know, but I think when I, I, I tried to do a bit of that when we recorded our yeah. part run episode, and I think that you know the the pace was a bit fast for me. The tail walking, walking past, yeah. Mm. Is it not? Is the tail ambling? Is that acceptable? I think it's fine. Pottering. Yeah, I think. I think honestly, I think. Stick around. <laughs> just Stick around, winked, kiddo. He just winked at me. Thank right. you. <laughs> 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 Should we thank our guests? Yeah, I'd like to thank uh, Zion Lights, Talat Ahmed, and Serge Popovich. And Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made the ident. And the artwork wasn't made by Emily Power, but it was made by Henry Cole. He's been civil, he's been disobedient, and these have been reasons to be cheerful. <laughs> <laughs>